0: Hey everyone, welcome back to 3 Blondes. Today we have a different kind of episode for us. Today we asked out and we reached out to you guys and asked what your greatest loss was, whether it be loss in a relationship or whatever your loss may be. And today we just kind of want to focus on that, so let's get into it.
1: Hello, my name is Joyce and I wanted to take a moment to share my story with you. I actually did write a book about this back in 2014 and I titled my book Beyond the Mask. Now for my story I will just say that this was something that I never ever in my life imagined that I would be able to overcome. I never believed that there would be an end to the pain that I felt. It goes back to my childhood. I was four years old. I am actually 41 right now. I'm about to have a birthday though. Um, but let's get back to the story so I was four years old at the time and we were left my older brother and myself as well as my cousin who is the same age as as I am we were left home with another family member to be our caretaker while our parents were at work now what happened is this caretaker was male and He sent the boys off to the store I remember this day so well he called them and gave them money to go buy some candy at the store at that time my older brother was like 6 and I like I said I was 4 I remember everything about that day I remember looking at the sky and it was just so blue there was like barely any clouds and there was a nice gentle breeze it was just a beautiful day and for me it's like such a such a contrast to what would happen you know How could such a perfect day yield such a terrible event? Um, But the boys went, and that was what he did to, you know, separate us so that he could do what it was that he wanted to do to me. So what happened next forever changed my world. It forever changed my life. And he, he sexually assaulted me. And what I remember the most is like I remember him telling me that um this is what people who are in love do and he was telling me how much he loved me and at the same time I'm like, okay but you're hurting me, this doesn't make sense. I just wasn't able to comprehend what was happening. And one thing that I remember the most is when he was finished and it was time for him to ejaculate, he did it all in my face and in my hair and I, I, was like, I was a child. I was confused. I did not know what was happening. I remember so much about that day up until that moment. Well, a little bit after that moment because I remember being sat in the bath and he cleaned me up, but everything else after that is like such a blur. I, want, I sometimes wish that I would know so that I could kind of make sense of the next things that happened, but this person lived with us. He was a family member and So as far as me being able to share what happened, I couldn't. He had told me that he would nobody would believe me. He told me that um, not only would nobody believe me, but I would be blamed for what happened. Yet I'm thinking, well, you said this is what people who love each other do. You said that you know I was this wonderful person then, but now you're saying this. I'm confused, and I really just was confused. I don't, you know, I. I really wish I could make sense out of what happened. But that's just my truth. I can't. And so now we get into, you know, um, as I began to get older and I would think about it, it did depress me. It depressed me a lot. And I would have, I had so many questions, but I just didn't have an outlet. It was almost like my tongue was stuck to the roof of my mouth and I couldn't speak. I remember, you know, kind of being a happy person prior to that day but after that day everything happened and I would look at my life like you know everything was great up until that point and I, I would want to get I would do everything sorry that I could possibly do to get back to that point but you know we can't go back into time and so you know I just kind of dealt with that and not really dealt with it but you know I just learned how to cope and compartmentalize it and put it at the back of my head but what happens is you can't do that forever because every now and then it's going to creep up and it was, it was like a thorn in my flesh. It was the one thing that I really needed to, to kind of make peace with, to deal with so that I could move forward into, you know, into my life and be a healthy, productive person. But it took a lot of work for me to, to be able to do that. Now, about the time when I was 10, I was at school, and a boy came up to me, and he asked me if I wanted to be his girlfriend, and the only thing that I could think about at that time was like, oh my gosh, he is going to know what happened, and he's going to tell everybody what happened, and I'm going to be embarrassed, and it's not going to be a secret anymore, and you know, I just had so many things go through my mind, because then I was going to be a bad girl, and then he only wanted me also so that he could hurt me and i just struggled with it i remember running away from him and thinking to myself i need to come up with a solution so that this doesn't that thing doesn't happen to me again so it was like when i got home from school that day i i thought i had just you know found the perfect idea and what i was going to do to protect myself from any you know from from this possibly happening again, and what I decided in my 10-year-old mind was that I was going to eat and eat and eat, so I became so fat, so unattractive that nobody would want me, and that's exactly what I did, I ate until, like, I I think I just ate myself into, I ate myself into, I ate myself to sleep, I would eat when I was happy, when I was sad, when I was depressed, when I didn't know how I was feeling, food was like my best friend. And of course, in time, as the pounds began to pack on, I was angry because now look at me, you know, I have this, all this extra weight on my body, people making fun of me. I don't like how I look. I don't like how I feel. And yet, at the same time, this was supposed to make me feel safe, but it really didn't, you know, and yet at the same time, now I have this unhealthy relationship with food, And so even though I'm like upset and I'm mad and I know it's because I ate so much, I would still continue to eat because that's just what I learned how to do. Food became my source of comfort. Um, I continue to still, still deal with depression. And it was just hard because I didn't really have anybody to talk to, to share what happened with me. And I would feel like because I've been quiet for so long, nobody will believe me and what good is it, you know, what good is it, because I'll still be blamed for everything that happens, and I just continue to go through life like that, things got really bad when I was about 16, it was, I had just turned 16, and I was just so depressed, I was so depressed, and I just wanted it to end, I didn't want to deal with the pain, I didn't want to I couldn't deal with it. I wasn't dealing with it, and I didn't know. And it would be difficult because I was with my friends, and they were all, you know, happy, starting to date and having relationships. And I would just be so anxious and so nervous and could not be around any any guys our age and that kind of thing. And I just didn't know how to cope with everything that was happening. And I just felt like, you know what, this has to end. And it was, there was one day when I, I did a lot of lying to get money so that I could get some, some medication. So I had done my research, found out what people were taking to commit suicide. And I really went out and bought that stuff. And I bought large, you know, I bought quantities that really should have killed me. I remember standing in front of the bathroom mirror, just looking at myself and I was finally happy. Like, you know, I kind of had a sense of peace and I had, literally had not experienced that type of peace and I just felt like you know what everything is going to be okay I'm going to take these pills I don't know what's beyond this life but whatever it is it has to be better than what I'm living what I'm experiencing how I'm feeling and so I took those pills and I went to bed I went to bed I woke up I just remember like my mom had been trying to wake me up And the next thing I know, there was doctors. There was a doctor there, and they were were pumping my stomach. And all I could think to myself was, like, you are such a failure. You couldn't even do this right. And I was crying, just saying to myself, like, why am I still here? Like, this should have worked. I don't want to be here anymore. And, you know, that sense of failure was so overwhelming that, yeah, uh, it was just so difficult for me to comprehend what happens. But fast forward, the years went by and I just continued to mask the pain. I just acted like everything was perfectly normal and you know, I be- got, I got better with it. Like I would I would still deal with depression, but I think my highs were becoming more longer than my lows, but the lows were still very low. Um the problem or what I experienced from from that sexual assault is that I always lived my life trying to go back to who I was before that moment. It was like my development had been arrested and I wanted and I wanted to do anything and everything that I could to be that girl again so that we could relive life. It was like I stopped living and, you know, I was trying to raise her from the dead. And I really never Yeah, it never made, you know, it never occurred to me that no, you're still her. That's just part of your story. I didn't accept it for myself. I went through life with very low self esteem. I doubted everything. I had zero confidence. And I didn't think that I deserved anything. And the terrible thing about it is, I made lifelong decisions from a broken place, from a hurt place, from a From where, uh, from a place where I did not know my identity, I chose to, you know, to, to enter a relationship with somebody who was toxic. Like, really, this, and then we had children and were married, and it was just, it was just a, it was a hot mess. It was, in time, I later discovered that he was a narcissist, and so it was just a whole lot of drama in the marriage, and it was, um, it was one day when he had just like left, like he went to work one day and just didn't come home and we didn't hear from him for like six months. After, you know, during that period though, I, I first went, first I was just like numb and I was in like, you know, just recovery mode or not even recovery but survival mode because I'm a mom now and I have two kids who were three and six, I work full time, I go to school, one child is in daycare one needs to go to aftercare and it took both of us to keep this boat floating and it took both our incomes to keep things going but he just disappeared like off the surface of the earth I didn't know anything I knew like you know I would hear around that he was you know he had been doing various things and he had blocked me on social media so I created a fake account And I would log in and see this fool is at Madison Madison Square Garden. He is actually checking in, going to Knicks games. He was going to Giants games. But I'm struggling. We're getting evicted. Lights are being shut off. I was just trying to keep things together. I I had been written up so many times at work because I was missing work. This
2: story was sent in from Joy, who is a life and relationship coach. She also has a podcast of her own called Project Real Love Podcast. Um, And let me get back into the second half of her story.
1: And yet I tried to just do the very best that I could to maintain. Now, it was in that moment, it was in that season of life where I had to now get out of this funk, because what happened, what ended up happening was really, I was depressed about him, and then feelings of being insecure, inferior, or worthless would bubble up to the surface a lot, and I, all those old things, the way I used to look at myself, and what I believed about myself to be my truth, being used goods, damaged goods, good for nothing, um, You know, just all of the negative self talk that I had been doing from the time I was four was now beginning to really be the focus of my life and the way I was seeing things. I had hit rock bottom. It took a really good friend of mine being able to see that things were something was up with me and he sat me down and we just talked about it. And it was him who kind of sort of, you know, cracked the the window open, if I can say that, and began to give me a different perspective on how to see myself, and it was right there, right then, that I began to seek healing, I went for therapy, and I had a great therapist, and slowly, you know, and I had to do the work to begin to heal, I had to want more, because, you know, in that moment when I was feeling abandoned by my my, my ex-husband now when I was feeling abandoned by him, and rejected, and feeling worthless, suicide was at the front of my mind, but it was the sound of my kids laughter in the other room, that made me feel like, listen, he's left you, and he's left them too, Um, don't leave them, and you know, I could just hear them laughing, and I had, I knew I needed to do something better, something that would show them that, you know, mommy actually cares, and so that's, that's another thing that propelled me to go forth and get counseling. It was, it's a great thing that I did it. I'm so grateful for my friend for stepping in and just, you know, speaking life to me because really I was, I was gone. And um, as I began to heal, um, and I did, let me tell you something, I did the therapy and I prayed a lot. I prayed a lot. I stayed at the feet of Jesus. And, you know, it was almost like, you know, I would feel like, Lord, if I could just touch the hem of your garment, you would take this away. But really, I went before him and I was like, listen, if you don't fix this, if you don't help me in this situation, then nobody is going to help me. And I'm, I'm good to nobody. I had to pursue my healing. I had to want something different for my life. I needed to fight for my life. And that's essentially what I did. And I began to you know I began to speak positive affirmations over myself I began to reverse my thinking with you know with what I was saying and I began to um, and it was hard because in the beginning you know you don't believe those things but I had to keep on telling myself you are worth you are worthy you are beautiful you are strong you are intelligent you are enough you are desirable you are lovable you know I had to keep on reaffirming myself, and um, and I began to read books, I just began to, you know, I just began to try to make peace with my past, and, you know, accept it for what it is, and of course, the guidance from the therapist helped me a lot, a great deal, and I also had a lot of um, spiritual counsel, so it just kind of all came together, and it, it took some time. It took some time, but I had been in that place of brokenness for 31 years. I had spoken negatively and contrary to who I was for 31 years. It took me that long to begin the process of healing. And once, you know, once once I felt like, you know, I'm okay because I, I had to start also trying to learn how to identify what would trigger me. And that's still a little, you know... I do know certain things that are triggers for me and I'm still learning other things. I would I would have to also deal with different things like you know the different stages of grief because really I was grieving the old me. And um, you know, so it's still I think it's I still find it to be a journey because again, I'm still learning various triggers and it was just crazy because one day it was like really literally I woke up one day and I didn't feel the same about that situation I could think about it and think about it but nothing could evoke the pain that I would feel nothing could evoke the sadness and it was just like a weight had been lifted over my shoulders and here I am living thriving loving life doing better finding out who I am chasing things that I would never thought I would be. Who would have thought that overweight girl at like 250 something pounds was in the gym, lifting weights, loving herself, watching her body change and seeing her strength. You know, one thing I I refused to do was to continue to be obese because it felt like I was giving him power over me. And it was, it was just one of those things that became a focal point in my journey, in my transformation. And um, I just began to love myself. I began to love my life. I began to realize that I had been settling so long because I didn't know who I was. I feel like, you know, where I am right now... <laughs> It's so crazy because I have a I I really can't believe that I will say this, and every time I think about it, it just blows my mind. That that experience that I had—that one day when I was four—that changed my life forever. I'm okay with it. Not only am I okay with it, I—I accept that it happened to me. I accept that it happened to me because it made me the woman that I am today. I know who I am. I'm confident i i have a testimony my story can help somebody you know one thing that i would i used to think was it only happened to me so nobody in the world could experience or be able to relate to what i had been through but that's a lie like i said earlier one in four girls are sexually assaulted before age 18 so that means there are millions of girls were like me and who were still trying to find their authentic self, who were still trying to silence the voices in their head, who are still having nightmares at night. And I made it my, I made it my mission. I said, I, you know, I'm going to make this my mission that now that I'm here in a place of wholeness, I want to go back and help somebody else. And I began to, you know, just focus on a few things to see how could I make this happen. And at that point I decided to name myself or brand myself as Pink Girl Teaches. Pink because it's a it's my favorite color. I'm a girly girl. But on another level in psychology, pink is referred to as a color of compassion and of caring. Now those are two qualities that that are me, you know, they embody me. Oh, I embody those qualities. And it took me a moment, you know, to realize that you actually have something positive to say about yourself. So pink came from compassion and caring girl, because I was doing this for the four-year-olds me. I was doing this so that I could be a bridge to the little girls and these other grown women, as well as the little girls who are still girls and dealing with this. Teachers, because I'm going to teach them how to go from pain to purpose, from shame, to showstopper, that you do not have to be, you do not have to wear a false identity, but come on the other side. Let's work together. Let's grow through this so that you too can get to your place of healing. It's difficult. It's difficult um, when the subject is so taboo and people are constantly blamed for what happened to them, even though it's out of their control. And so you know, it starts on you know the teaching starts on a, on a different level, just to let people know that it wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve this. You didn't deserve it. And just taking it from there, everybody's story, although it is similar, is unique in how we respond to it. Some people are able to just you know move on and be okay with it, out with it, not actually um, affecting other areas of their life. But I want to say that the long-term effects of of childhood sexual assault are real. People have PTSD. People are obese. People suffer from depression. Many will enter into relationships with toxic people. We be, uh, many people become codependent. I was codependent. I was incredibly codependent, and it it take you know it took so much work to not be those things anymore. And even now, every now and then, I have to check myself and check my motives why are you doing what you're doing are you truly happy about what you're doing so it's a lifelong journey but at the end of the day what I will say it is well worth it if I can take my story and help somebody else thank you for taking time to listen to me
2: this next story is from the co-host of Historical AF. Her name is Kina, and she talks about two of the biggest losses in her life.
0: Hello, this is Kina. I am the co-host of Historical AF podcast, but I'm not going to talk about history today. Today, I'm going to talk about grief because your girl has dealt with some grief in her lifetime. I have lost two really important people in my life, And I dealt with them both very differently. The first was my best friend, Rihanna. I like to call her Ray Ray. And it was 2005. I was just 20 years old. You know, not only was she my best friend, she was my first real friend I made as I was becoming an adult. You know, I didn't grow up with her, it was kind of a different situation you know yeah when you're that age you still kind of have your high school friends and you're still trying to figure out who you are but she really came into my life in this time where I was really struggling my father left my family kind of penniless (laughs) and uh, he kind of did it to position it so that my mom would have to so then my mom would kind of have to agree to the terms of divorce, but he didn't expect for me and my sister to kind of step up and support my mom. So I started working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week to, you know, take care of my mom, make sure she had food and her medicine. And then my sister did the same thing to kind of pay for the lawyer. And so it was a really, really, really tough time for my family and I, and I was so depressed. And, you know, I've known Rihanna from, you know, band trips and just off and on. We went to different high schools, but I knew ever that she started working with me and I immediately felt this probably sounds cheesy, but almost like a soul connection. Like I knew she was my person. I just knew immediately there was nobody that can make me laugh the way she did. Nobody that cared as much as she did. And during this time I would just lock myself in my house and I wouldn't come out. And she would just kind of almost knock down the door just to make me laugh. And, She had an eight-month-old at the time, and she would show up with the baby and be like, you can't say no to the baby. So she was so selfless. You know, later I realized that she had to have been dealing with her own things, but she was so focused on making me better that, you know, she put her feelings aside to help me through that. And I don't think I could have made it without her. You know, there was a time where I had to testify against my own dad in court, and it was horrible. And she was there for me; she was always there for me. And I remember the last time we hung out when she was alive. We just went to Walmart and sat on the floor and looked at bridal magazines, and talked about what we would make each other wear at our weddings. We talked about going to college out of state and what we wanted to do, and we talked about being old ladies and how we just make fun of kids that tried to get in our yard. And it's just the surreal really surreal experience to know that we talked about our future so much the day before I lost her. The next day we were at work. We worked at Sonic Drive-In together and she wasn't feeling good and I remember a couple of people asking you know if we could cover her shift so she could go home and I mean if you've worked fast food you know that just doesn't happen sometimes so you know it hit five o'clock. She left and I told her that I'd be following her because I was going to you know, play with the baby and let her get some rest. And uh, something happened and I had to stay behind. And I finally left and I got in the car, barely made it a mile. And I got a phone call from her sister and she was so upset. She said that Ray had been in an accident and I've been in two car accidents in my life, you know, and I I broke my leg and I broke my wrist. And in my head, I was thinking, you know, she's probably broke her leg. I'm going to get there. She's made cracking the best jokes about it. You know, she'll be hobbling around on a crutches, you know, for a while, but it would be, it'd be all right. And I got to the hospital and I realized right away that this wasn't the case. I'm no stranger to that hospital and I'm no stranger to this room where they put you in until all your family gets there so they can tell you that you've lost your loved one. And as soon as I realized that's what they were doing, I I went numb I I don't I don't know how else to explain it (laughs) and uh, when her family got there they all went to that room and I remember her mother screaming this blood-curdling scream when they told her that she didn't make it and it seared into my brain (laughs) it was probably one of the most painful things I've ever experienced and uh, somehow I ended up on the ground I think I just fell to the ground and I was numb. At some point, either I messaged my mom or somebody else did. And she showed up and tried to get me off the floor. And I remember them finally coming to ask me if I wanted to say goodbye. So I went in there and I said goodbye. And she looked so, she looked like she was sleeping. So it was even harder for me to comprehend how I had just been talking to her. We had plans. We were going to do things, and there she was, and she was gone, and it made no sense to me. So immediately, I I just couldn't comprehend what was happening. So I'm the kind of person that instead of feeling my feelings, I tend to just get to work. So I immediately, you know, tried to be a caretaker to her family. I tried to be there and do what they needed, and I decided to run a fundraiser at Sonic to raise money for her family. You know, she left behind an eight-month-old, and I just, I wanted to do everything in my power to make it easier on them. It would be a couple of years before I realized that I never actually grieved for her. I was... I finally moved to go to college. Because I think part of me knew that if I would have stayed behind and I let all this destroy me, she would have never forgiven me. So I moved across the state to go to college. And luckily, colleges did not offer free therapy. So I finally knew that I needed help. And I went to therapy, and I realized that I'd never grieved her. And it was there that I had to kind of come to terms with all the things that I was feeling. You know, first of all, I had survivor's guilt. I had been in a horrible car accident. I'd rolled my car down an embankment. And, you know, I came away with it with some sprained wrists some scratches, and that car, you know, when the police got there, they asked where the body was at, and I was like, yeah, I'm right here, and, you know, her car, I heard from the police, was barely dented, so I couldn't comprehend how I survived such a horrible car crash, and she died by, you know, it was kind of a head-on, but a little to the side, but they, they said it was okay, like her car, but I think she wasn't wearing her seatbelt, which I honestly couldn't understand because she never got in a car without a seatbelt. So it made no sense to me. And then I was angry. I was angry that I survived. I was angry that she wasn't wearing her seatbelt. I was angry that her daughter didn't have a mom. And it was kind of eating me up inside. (laughs) So, you know, in therapy, I learned that I needed to finally accept that I've lost her. And it took a long time. I was so sad because I don't think I'd ever met anybody that got me the way she did at that point. And I don't think anybody had ever cared about me like she did at that point. Somebody that would be that selfless and take care of me because I'm normally the caregiver. So it was such a different dynamic, I guess. And she was also just this light, you know, she could light up any room. She could make anybody laugh. She was just this personality that I've never seen in anybody else. And I remember her funeral was so packed that they couldn't fit everybody. And I remember that once I started to grieve and it was rough (laughs) and I finally started to kind of encroach on the whole acceptance, I realized that I need to live my life. I need to be the person I promised her I would be. I needed to deal with the guilt that I have. You know, not only the survivor's guilt, but I had guilt because, you know, when you're 20 and you're hanging out with your best friend, you never say like, "Oh, you're my best friend, I love you." So I had this guilt, like, did she know that she meant this much to me? And uh, so I had to kind of deal with that too. And I, I know she knew, she had to have known. And you know, my guilt of her taking care of me when I should have been taking care of her, and you know, I've had to work through that too. But now that I, it's been so long. Uh, It still hurts every day, you know, to be without her. And I allow myself one day a year to grieve, and that's the day that she died, on February 25th. And usually that day I cry. I cry a lot. (laughs) And then I think about how lucky I am to have had her in my life. She made me a better person. She made me who I am today, and I know that. And now I live every day to try to be as kind as she was, to try to be as funny as she was, to try to make the impact on people's lives like she did. And, you know, maybe if I die, maybe my funeral could be as packed as hers, showing that I had the impact that she had. So it was a rocky road, and grief is very hard. (laughs) You know, and I went through every step. I went through the bargaining, I went through the denial, the anger, the depression, i finally at the acceptance, but it's a cycle. You know, sometimes you go through it again. And sometimes I'm just angry <laughs> that I don't have her. You know, there's times where it's worse. Like when I got married, I didn't have her. And it's one of the reasons I eloped, because I couldn't imagine having a wedding without her in it. And uh, when I have a kid someday, if if I have a kid someday, you know, not having her to ask for advice. It's just a really, really tough situation. And I have wonderful friends. I do. And I love them all dearly. But, you know, there's just a little hole because she had such a huge impact in my life. And I loved her so much. So, but I know she's with me. And I know that she will always be with me. And when I look at her daughter, who is a Teenager now, she is the spinning image of her, you know, even personality-wise. So it's just a a joy for me to get to know her too. And I mentioned I had another loss. Um, my father, who I kind of mentioned a little earlier, it's uh it's been a rocky relationship with him. You know, he was an alcoholic my entire life. And he You know, a lot of people have, like, ups and downs. I never saw my dad sober until he was dying. So he had pulmonary embolisms and was in the hospital. And during this time I was in therapy, my therapist also told me, you know, you can love your parents. You can love them unconditionally, but you don't have to like them. (laughs) And if they are toxic to you, you don't have to talk to them. So, you know, four years before that, I told him that the second he became sober, I would be in his life. But until then, I had to walk away you know, for my own sanity, for my own health, and I did, and then the second I found out he was sober, I was there, but it was a little too late, he was dying, and he knew he was dying, we all do, did, he'd been drinking for 40 years, it, it had done a number on him, but he was sober, so I was getting to know him, the real him, the the man my mom fell in love with, the man that he was when I was a baby, you know, I was really young when he started drinking, but I don't really remember him. So I got that time, but I also knew that he was dying. So it was, it was a little different because when he did pass away, it was a lot sooner than we thought it would be. You know, we were making plans and we were going to travel and he was going to come see me at my job and it was sudden, but I knew it was coming. And I was more angry because I had finally gotten a dad. I had spent my whole life wishing for this man and there he was and then he was gone in six months and that was hard on a different level i think also the steps of grieving were a little faster for this is because i reached acceptance a little earlier because i was just so thankful because i know so many people that have addicts for parents never get the opportunity that i do You know, they never had their parents look them in the eyes and apologize for being an alcoholic. They never had their parent admit that they were an alcoholic, and I got that. You know, some of our last conversations was him telling me how proud he was and how much he loved me and how sorry he was. And there was a lot of comfort in that, and there was a lot of closure in that. So I feel like it's very different. I never had closure with Rihanna, but I had a lot of closure with my dad. So... Grief is painful, but it's necessary. And if anybody is out there dealing with grief, just know that there are stages and you can cycle through them several times. And, you know, even when you feel like you're never going to make it to acceptance, it's possible. And if you can't, and if you got like me and you start becoming a bit self-destructive, um, Go to therapy. You know, it's there's nothing to be ashamed of. I had to do it and I wouldn't be who I am today without it. I wouldn't have gotten myself together. I wouldn't have become who I am. I wouldn't have been healthy enough to meet my husband and, you know, have the life I have now. So it's all worth it. It's hard and it's dark and it's scary and it's horrible, but you can you can get out of it. You know, I've done it you can too. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening to my story. And uh, I hope that if you're dealing with grief, you find peace too. So thank you. Bye.
2: Our last story is from Laura, who is a financial consultant and has a podcast named Family Money Coaching. And this is her story about Her family and her grief, but also the wonderful things that came out of it.
3: My story begins when I met my husband September 3rd, 2010. We were married April of 2011. I was 34 years old. I was so excited to get married and it was always my dream to be a wife and a mother and it had never happened. So it was very disappointing to me throughout life that that I wasn't married Until I was 34. But dreams come true. So we wanted to have a family right away. And the first year of our marriage, every single month, it was just a disappointment. And after a year of being married, I told my husband, It's time for you to get tested. I've already been tested. Nothing's wrong with me, they said. So he got tested and we discovered that we had male infertility. One in eight couples suffer from fertility issues, and 50% of those are male infertility. We visited with the fertility doctor. In Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he informed us that we would be candidates for IVF. It was a a shock to our system to be able to have to save up that money. And a month after we found out that we had IVF issues, my husband lost his job. The company he had been working for um, sold, so all of a sudden we were without insurance, and both of us were looking for work. I had just finished a certification, and I began working. And then he began working and the two of us saved up enough money so that we could do IVF. And we actually attempted IVF five times before we got pregnant. I'm getting a little ahead of myself in the story. In August of 2013, we began babysitting a little girl. And by October of 2014, we had adopted her. We found out that she had A little sister that was on the way and we believed that DCS would get involved. We were led to believe actually. And so we started taking foster care classes. In March of of 2015, her little sister was born and unfortunately she was not taken like we believed. And the mother went out of state to a drug rehab and gave the baby up for adoption. So in May of 2015, we went and did IVF for our fifth time and got pregnant. And we were really, really excited, like super duper excited. We'd spent $35,000 trying to get pregnant. Finally, we were pregnant. My my daughter just wanted a baby sister so bad. In fact, I wanted a baby girl so much that I went and bought one of those Minnie Mouse car seats. It was totally adorable. But I just, I had this dream, this envision of like having this little girl. And I was having dreams about a little baby girl. In fact, i I got this little shirt that said, I have a secret, I'm going to be a big sister. And I had my daughter wear it. And we went and visited my sis- my parents and my sister in Kentucky. And my mom just squealed. She's very calm, even collected woman. But when we showed her the shirt, she was so excited. And we were excited and went to the visit at the doctor and listened to the heartbeat. And it was so... Amazing to listen to this little heartbeat of this little person that was inside of me. And the doctor said, listen, Laura, the heartbeat's slow. I don't know why it's slow, but it's slow. And I just want to prepare you that you could have a miscarriage. And I was like, oh okay he's like so you know i'm just i'm just preparing you and the next day uh, we went to a family reunion in illinois and i have five siblings everybody shows up and my youngest sister shows up five months pregnant and she told everybody that she was pregnant and i had i'd only told my mom and my oldest sister so it was um she beat me to the punch which was really sour grapes for me well we were home for three days and all of a sudden i started having a miscarriage and it was really very very sour for me because it had been a dream to get pregnant and a, a dream to be a mother and here my sister just announced that she's pregnant as well and I was having a miscarriage and I was devastated I was totally devastated um I went home and I was depressed for about a good solid month during that time that I sucked my thumb after the month I realized I need to get up I have a daughter I need to take care of her I have a husband I need to take care of, and I I went forward and put a smile on my face. It was hard inwardly, and three months later... I was picking up my daughter from school and I got a call from DCS and they said, hey, you know, you've been approved foster parents for a couple months and there's a little boy that was born this morning and he has a two-year-old brother and we'd like to know if you would take them in. Um, they will be adoptable because of the situation that they're in, but will you take them? I said, absolutely, we'll take them. And we took that Minnie Mouse car seat, went to the hospital and picked up this sweet little boy with coal black hair. And he was in that car seat for a whole year. And I thought, he's not going to be scarred by this. That little boy is now three and a half years old today. And he just loves his mommy. And he has a, such a sweet, good little heart. And he's been a great joy to our family. Uh, two weeks after we got him, we we received his older brother. And he's now five and a half. And my daughter is now seven. I've been a financial coach since two. 2012. About August of 2018, I decided that I wanted to start a podcast and prepare couples financially for adoption and fertility. Use the experience that I've had with the five IVF cycles and with the three adoptions and help other families gain the forever family that they're seeking. I know it's not easy, but I know that the journey is so worth it. I love my kids. Sometimes they drive me crazy, but don't all kids, right? And marriage is not easy, but we're in it for the long haul. We are here together as a family to create memories together, to serve each other, to learn to serve our community. And I'm taking a sour thing that happened to me and creating something good to help other couples.
2: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, Make sure you... Tune in to our next episode. I'm really excited about it. It is going to be about astrology. We're going to be interviewing an astrologist, and I'm really looking forward to it. We will be posting more about it, so make sure you're liking us on Facebook and following us on Instagram and Twitter. Now, you have a Twitter. Oh, now. and Twitter. That's right. At three dumb blondes three. just like our instagram (laughs) thanks everyone bye bye